0: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently,
1: I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year
0: contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. On last week's edition of the podcast, we talked about the most powerful woman in US politics, at least the woman most considered to be the most powerful, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. But Nancy Pelosi does not hold the highest office ever held by a woman in America. That honour goes to the Vice President, Kamala Harris. Now, the word in Washington these days is that Kamala Harris is not exactly feeling the power of that role, or indeed feeling much love from the White House. There have been numerous reports over the last few weeks suggesting that she is instead a somewhat isolated figure. And that talk prompted a tweet from the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, which raised quite a few eyebrows and got a lot of attention. Here's what Jen Psaki tweeted. For anyone who needs to hear it, at VP, referring to Kamala Harris, is not only a vital partner, to the president, but a bold leader who has taken on key, important challenges facing the country, from voting rights to addressing root causes of migration to expanding broadband. Now, it's never a very good sign when your boss feels the need to send out a message that, yes, your job really is important and, yes, you really matter. So what led to this apparent show of unity right now? And why is it exactly that supporters of the vice president are feeling that chill? And what does it say about Kamala Harris's prospects and hopes of one day succeeding Joe Biden in the Oval Office? To bring us bang up to date, I wanted to speak to Lauren Gambino, who's political correspondent for Guardian US. And I started off by asking her why she thought Jen Psaki it was a good idea and necessary to send that tweet.
1: The tweet came just hours after this CNN story posted and it was a really devastating account of what they called dysfunction on Kamala Harris's team and just this really uh, intense tension between the West Wing and Kamala Harris's Vice presidential office. And so I think the White House felt that this had just reached the level of needing to really push back. It also included some strong claims that Kamala Harris didn't feel the White House was defending her publicly as she faced sort of this unprecedented onslaught of racist and sexist attacks, particularly from the right. And so I think it just sort of rose to the level where the West Wing decided we need to show our support and make sure that this isn't the narrative that begins to form around Harris, because it's certainly not the first story to sort of suggest that there's this level of dysfunction on her team, and that she's sort of a vice president adrift without a clear role.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure you're right. And the trouble is, whenever you do something like that, is you then kind of legitimate the narrative, even though you're doing it in order to stop it, you slightly fuel it, because then people think, well, there's no smoke without fire. They wouldn't be doing this tweet unless there was a need to do it. And so has it been effective? Has it worked? Has it quieted the talk of Kamala Harris? Or on the contrary, made more people be like you and me right now talk about her?
1: I think that's exactly right, because now you know, we are talking about it um, and it's prompted a whole a rush of new reporting around the vice president and you have her supporters who are going on the record coming out publicly asking whether the white house has set her up to fail by giving her you know a series of really intractable issues to sort of try to make progress on um so i think you know in an effort to do damage control it might have caused more damage but they felt they had to respond
0: let us break those things down because i think you know, that that's absolutely right and the and the, the tweet itself in a way goes to that because it mentions these in gensarki's words key important challenges facing the country from voting rights to addressing root causes of migration to expanding broadband. Well, well, let's just go with the first two. I mean, they are really tricky issues, the voting rights phenomenon. And we maybe explained for our listeners who what is actually the problem that she's having to tackle and how impossible, intractable, to use your word, that problem really is.
1: She's been put in this role. And what makes it so challenging is that there are two pieces of legislation pending before Congress and Both require 60 votes in the Senate, and there are not 60 votes in the Senate because it is evenly divided at the moment between Republicans and Democrats, with uh, Kamala Harris being the tie-breaking vote in favor of Democrats.
0: I'd like to think that we have evolved as a nation and that we would not have to return to a moment where the United States Senate would have to debate, yet in this situation, fail as a body to even move forward protections as it relates to the right to vote. So we're not going to
1: give up. Her challenge now is to either try to find some sort of compromise on this legislation that could bring over 10 Republicans, or there is this other option, which is to eliminate the so-called filibuster, which would allow for a majority, a simple majority to pass legislation in the Senate. But Joe Biden's been really reluctant to eliminate the filibuster. Joe Biden, famously an institutionalist who served more than 35 years in the Senate, And so that makes it really hard for her because she can't come out and publicly say, let's get rid of the filibuster, though she uh, went there during her presidential campaign. But as the lieutenant to the president, she can't really focus on the filibuster if, if he's not willing to go there. So right now, she just has to keep calling on Congress who, you know, there's no path currently without eliminating the filibuster to get there. So that is why it's such a challenge. The best she can do is use her bully pulpit on this issue.
0: Yeah, no, it's a hospital pass, really, that issue, for the reasons you just explained. And of course, we on the podcast have talked so often about the filibuster and how really unbreakable that demand for a 60-strong supermajority is, how insurmountable it is. But this other issue, which is really costing the president in popularity terms, and that is migration. We knew about it and we talked about it a lot when Donald Trump was president, these really traumatic scenes on the southern border with migrants and particularly migrant children being separated from their parents. They were caged, these children. It was a real stain morally on the record of Donald Trump. So just refresh our memory of where we are now with the migration issue and what impact it has on her that this is in her inbox.
1: Migration is just such a, uh, continues to be a massive problem for this presidency, but it's also an issue that has, you know, bedeviled presidents for decades now of both parties. Biden projected himself as much more open, you know, give me your tired, your poor. This is a country for, you know, for migrants. And he liked to compare his own family to that. And so when he came into office, he decided to appoint Kamala Harris as the lead face of efforts, the White House had efforts to address the root causes of migration. And that's very important because early on in the administration, suddenly we started to have a crisis at the border. This latest caravan passing through Mexico, now numbering in the thousands. These migrants, many from Honduras, Guatemala, Haiti and El Salvador, stopping for rest. The migrants now, though, are still more than 1,100 miles away from the United States. And here you had Kamala Harris. her her mission is very long term, this idea of addressing root causes. So she's meant to deal with the northern triangle countries about why migrants are fleeing when there's this brewing um, influx of migrants right at the border. So Republicans start attacking her, saying, "You know, "Where is Kamala? Why hasn't she visited the border?" Obviously, then sort of cementing her role as the face of this. So it put her in a real bind, I think, and then it just sort of snowballed from there. She gave this interview on NBC where she was asked point blank, very simply,
0: Why not visit the border? Why not see what Americans are seeing in this crisis?
1: you know, why haven't you visited the border? And she kind of awkwardly laughed it off and said she also hasn't visited Europe. And it just, it was, you know, sort of mishandled on her end, but it was also just clarified how difficult this, this issue was going to be and how hard it was going to be for her to, to make any progress and how easy it was going to be for her opponents, particularly Republicans who are watching her as a potential future candidate for president to attack her on this issue.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that because there's obviously a little bit of both. But in in, in people who are not partisan or don't have a direct axe to grind here, do people think the lack of success is because of the issues themselves? Or do they critique her for her performance? Do they say, yeah, these are tough issues, but within that, she has not done a good job?
1: I think we see a bit of both. So I think there's widespread recognition that these are very, very difficult tasks to have on your plate, especially all at once. Nevertheless, I think there are real criticisms of how she's at least how she's presented herself in the role. She Her first visit to El Salvador and then to the border was criticized, I think, by nonpartisans who thought she could have done a better job handling this. She can be awkward. She is known to be a good retail politician, but she can sometimes get uncomfortable when she's asked or pressed. So I think some of it is just her political posture and her political nature. She's a very cautious person. Her supporters say that is because she is so used to facing just a barrage of attacks for being sort of the first woman and the first one of colour always. Nevertheless, you know, these are the kind of things that start to define you as a politician and, and she's hurt, certainly had her um, fair share of, of, you know, self-inflicted wounds.
0: It's very interesting this point about her being the first woman and the first woman of colour in this role because it could have hurt her in two ways. One is that the expectations and the hopes, in a way, were so high. I remember how emotional a lot of people felt seeing her taking the oath of office on January the 20th this year, the sense that a, a huge historic moment had arrived and therefore expectations were so high that in a way you, people can only be disappointed by reality when they've got such uh, a sort of lofty and perhaps almost unrealistic emotional uh, hopes. But on the On the other hand, of course, there is the obstacles that are presented to a woman of colour. I remember Condoleezza Rice famously said, you know, she knew from early on in her career that she would have to be twice as good. And that, I think, was the title of a biography of Condoleezza Rice. Is that what's going on here? Is Kamala Harris hurt by her own supporters, who in a way could only ever be disappointed because they were so thrilled by her arrival, but also by the traditional... And very familiar prejudices that demand so much of uh, of someone like her.
1: I think, without a doubt, sh- and she's spoken about this and the pressures that come with being the first. Because since she started in politics in San Francisco, she has been th- the first to fill that role, and over and over and over again throughout her career, she was the first. And she, you know, she has said that her goal is to not be the last. That is her line, and she used that as she when she ran for president. But I think it does present, you know, these obstacles, because if you fail, you're seen to not just fail as Kamala Harris, but to fail as the first female vice president in history, the first woman of color vice president in history. And um that's a lot of pressure to put on one person. Yeah, She also faces a unique set of expectations as someone who is seen as a potential heir. She is also... Uh, expected to to act at presidential when she's serving in a role that is very much second in command, so I think there is this double standard um, in another way because I think so many people expect that she is going to try to run, and that also again makes her a target of right wing media who would love to undercut her before that potential run for president
0: It is a very familiar dynamic where the vice president is simultaneously expected to be loyal but also, you know, limbering up for their own run for the top job. And we saw it with, you know, Al Gore, for example, as Bill Clinton's number two. So what about that dynamic in this case? I know that on Monday, Jen Psaki was asked if Joe Biden would endorse Kamala Harris for her own presidential bid in 2024, 2028. And and the White House Press Secretary kind of dodged that question. Uh,
1: I I don't have any predictions of whether she
0: will run, when she will run. I will leave that to her. But I can tell you that there's been a lot of reports out there and they don't reflect his view or our experience with the vice president. Because of course, they don't want to even admit uh, any possibility that Joe Biden wouldn't seek a second term because that would make him then a lame duck for his first term. But do we have a sense that there is any kind of understanding between them? Joe Biden is obviously Old, and if he does seek a second term, he would be asking Americans to make him president all the way until he's 86 years old. It's not unrealistic, at least, to ask the question. So, do we have any sense if there is? i putting my very British hat on here, a kind of Blair Brown type understanding, you know, famously the talk of a deal between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown about a succession. Is there any hint that there is some kind of understanding or even an arrangement between these two?
1: Nothing as formal as that. I think there is perhaps an expectation among some of her supporters that if, you know, after serving as four years as his vice president, you know, possibly eight, but, but certainly four, And after defending him, you know, that he would return the favor and endorse her should she run or at least, you know, support her in that effort. But I also think in, you know, we're seeing in modern politics uh, very strong anti-establishment currents. I think, you know, Joe Biden sort of being the exception. I don't know if some sort of an agreement even a tacit one would be helpful to her. I I think Mm. there's a lot of value placed on people who seem authentic and new and exciting. And she's already going, if she were to run, she'd be coming in as the vice president. We've seen candidates who run on their experience actually be faulted for it, again, with the exception of Joe Biden. But it was very unique as he was running against someone like Donald Trump. (laughs)
0: In terms of how the two of them present themselves publicly, I've been quite struck by, in some ways, her absence. I mean, Joe Biden was very often in the room, and it was noticed that Kamala Harris did speak at the signing ceremony, but it was slightly awkward there because the announcer announced her with someone else's name. Please welcome Heather Kurtenbach. In a moment. (laughs) But even... In the lead up to that, it wasn't like she was seen as a big player, Um, even though, you know, former senator herself, she could have been there uh, on the hill as a congressional player. You know, what's going on there? Are we, you know, this can be a bit of kind of Kremlinology where you're deconstructing the photos and who's standing next to whom. But what's your read of that, about the closeness of them and and particularly almost the attempt to project an image publicly and and give her sort of prominent billing or not?
1: So there's a, there's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation happening where at the beginning, and particularly because so many events were happening at the White House with, with the pandemic, Biden wasn't traveling at all. And so during the first few months, Kamala Harris was there almost every time Biden spoke, and but she wouldn't speak at every event. And there was this awkward visual of, you know, this very accomplished Black and Asian American woman standing over his shoulder and saying nothing And so they stopped sort of doing that and she would only start to accompany him when she would also be making comments as well. And then, you know, as pandemic restrictions begin to loosen you know she's been on the trail more and traveling internationally a bit so for example during the afghanistan withdrawal she was actually on a tour of southeast asia and and that was one of the the questions how much did you know about this were you aware of it and she insisted she was the last person in the room when he you know made the decision to officially withdraw but this question has started to, to take shape around her that she's not present
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose the plus side, if you're looking for a silver lining here, this bit of distance she has, I suppose, given that the Biden presidency is not popular at the moment, that maybe there's some value there for her because she is keeping her distance from some failures. And I'm thinking, for example, of the Afghanistan withdrawal. But possibly, if he doesn't get billed that better, maybe it's not so bad for her to not have her fingerprints on those missteps or even failures, as they may be seen by many voters.
1: You know, in the heat of a campaign, it might be useful to say, well, actually, I you know wasn't that involved or I actually advised the president to do this or, you know, I was out of the country. Imagine if I <laughs> if I had been there to, to call that last senator. Um, so it, it possibly could give her some cover. When it comes to passing his domestic agenda, he is weighted into it and he wants to be involved. He wants to be the one on the phone. He believes he can leverage his relationships there. You know, When he was vice president, Barack Obama gave him that role. That was his job. And that's not something that Harris can really step in and do easily because it's actually an area where Biden has a lot of expertise and a lot of relationships. and. I think that's just another example of how it's been really hard for her to carve out her own portfolio and to really sort of make a difference. You know, she's not the ambassador he's sending to Capitol Hill. He's doing that himself.
0: Yeah, no, it's just one of the pile of difficulties that you've made very clear confront her. When when we spoke to David Smith a couple of weeks ago about what Joe Biden could do now uh, in order to reverse a trend, which seems to be solidifying in terms of his poll numbers and so on. We asked him what he would have to do. Uh, So let's put the same question to you about Kamala Harris. I mean, how can she turn things around, do you think?
1: There's a possibility that the public airing of all of these grievances might snap her team into shape. And, you know, maybe it will make the White House more aware of of her concerns and they could do more to sort of protect her, defend her, etc. I also think there's going to be a couple opportunities for her to really get out on the trail and shift the narrative, if you will. So Biden is launching this massive cross-country tour to promote his infrastructure bill. And presumably, if they pass the other piece of his his domestic agenda, he will do the same. And she would be a very high-profile figure that they would send out. So how she does promoting his agenda, And then I also think with the midterms coming up, she could play an interesting role if she gets used effectively and she is successful on the campaign trail during the midterms. I think that could also really help both boost her public persona, but also maybe improve relations with the wider Democratic Party and, you know, perhaps better set her up for a future run should she want to run again.
0: Lauren, we always ask our guests, as you know, uh, on the podcast, a what else question. So this one on Wednesday, the House of Representatives voted to censure Republican Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona for a video uh, anime themed, which uh, depicted the killing of AOC uh, Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and showed a sword being used against President Joe Biden. This is not about me. This is not about Representative Gosar, but this is about what we are willing to accept. What do you make of how Republicans sort of responded to that? And I'm very struck by it. it's the fact that it's running in parallel with the fact that Republicans themselves are looking to take action against the 13 Republicans who voted with the Democrats and with Joe Biden for that bipartisan infrastructure bill. What are the two things side by side? Tell us about today's Republican Party.
1: I think it shows how much of a grip Donald Trump still has on this party. I mean, this comes, you know, I think 10 months after an insurrection at the US Capitol. People like Paul Gosar, the insurrection actually happened when Gosar was objecting to the electoral votes from Arizona being given to Joe Biden, who won the state. So the fact that it's again Gosar at the center of this and the Republican leadership again refusing to condemn him publicly because I think he is one of Donald Trump's most loyal defenders in Congress. I just think that shows where the the party is. And of course, we're seeing 13 members who voted with Democrats to support Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, infrastructure used to be one of the last realms of bipartisanship. Everybody has a road or bridge or water system in their district that they need fixed. And yet conservatives and conservative voters are just flooding these 13 Republicans with hateful messages, death threats, you know, targeting their families. So it's just a snapshot of how corrosive our politics have become, frankly, and how loyal Republican leadership remains to Donald Trump.
0: That's a theme we're definitely going to be picking up in a future uh, edition of the podcast. But for now, Lauren Gambino, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And that is all from me for this week. On Wednesday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, Ed Pilkington and Michael Safi discuss how through efforts at state level to elect loyalists to key positions, the stage might just be set for Donald Trump to pull off a repeat showing of 2016 In 2024. Plus, as always, listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly as Jessica Elgott brings us all the latest from Westminster. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there, and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.